Hello, Expo family. Uh, we're so grateful to be able to gather with you today. We're here in the seventh episode of Made for More, accelerating mobilization in the pandemic and beyond. And we've been making our way through the book of Ephesians. And today we're going to land in Ephesians chapter six. And we have a very special guest today, Daniel Strickland. Danielle, Hi, family. Thank you so much <laughs> for joining us. Uh, yeah, many of you know Danielle. She's a spiritual leader, just a justice advocate, communicator, peacemaker. Uh, she's been the catalyst for many church plants, establishing entire justice departments, launching global anti-traffic initiatives, things like Amplify Peace, Brave, the Women's Speaker Collective, so many good kingdom initiatives. And uh, thanks again for being with us today for this conversation on spiritual warfare. Ah, you got it. So what pleasure you, to be here. What's happening right now? Kind of bring us up to speed on uh, Daniel Strickland's life in uh, pandemic. Oh man, Daniel Strickland's life in pandemic is uh, just like everyone else's uh, probably, I would imagine, is kind of a mixture of this like crazy busy in a different way uh, that pays way less. <laughs> and then also like crazy boring and predictable and like, you know, daily routine is like going to do me in because I need some adventure. So it's kind of this mixture of both things. Uh, one of the most beautiful things that's come out of the season for me is a launch of a, a new, a nonprofit here called Imbi, which is in my backyard, which is tiny houses in people's backyards to redefine family mm -hmm. and uh, model discipleship, I think, and stewardship. Uh, and hopefully help some of the affordable housing crisis that we're experiencing in major cities across the world, but right now in my city. So it's kind of cool because you spend enough time in your own backyard, you realize like, wow, there's some things we could do. And also you realize during a, a crisis like this, where everybody is stuck in their own individual, you know, the crisis of this disassociated uh, life, right? Like this isolated living, which is uh, killing us as well. So I kind of had this brainstorm moment in October, middle of the night, the Lord woke me up and said, there's something we got to do about this, you know, just real practical, earthy, uh, one backyard at a time. Let's change the way we, let's change the way we do things, do life. Oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. So it, uh, unpack it just a little bit more. What you, you said, it's tiny houses <laughs> and helping families sort of like engage one another in a more holistic way. What does it look like? Just tell us maybe a short story and body it for us. Yeah. So I have a friend who's a newcomer to Canada. So she's a Sudanese refugee, amazing, incredible uh, human being. Um, and she needs her own autonomy and independence for sure. Needs an affordable place to live, um, but also needs some connection to community. And the way that we've designed life in most cities across Western worlds is isolated, autonomous, and disconnected. So right now she pays uh, probably about 80% of her income in rent. So she's literally living like this is it. There's no plan for the future. There's no savings account. There's no check to check. I mean, she, it keeps her vulnerable and um, you know, vulnerable for homelessness and all that kind of stuff. And she also lives all by herself. So imagine that also in a pandemic, but just in general, she lives a dis disconnected life. So one of the dreams is to have a tiny house. We have a nice big backyard. My kids love her. Our family loves her. And uh, the tiny house model that we've created, there's a couple different, you know, we create for the backyard. So it's custom made, but the model is a, a 33, 33, 33 split financially. So 33% of the rent goes back to the homeowner to cover any expenses. 33% goes into an equitable trust for the vulnerable person. So they're creating equity as they live there. And then 33% goes to MB to help uh, with the support process around the person. So that's just one story of Maya, but there's uh, four other stories that we're going to be sort of living this summer just to pilot these different models. There's one guy named Andrew who was just recently formerly homeless. Great guy. But again, the housing that was afforded to him was not only terrible, but also like beside a meth dealer, which is, you know, as much as it sounds horrible, it's such a common story with people who are trying to get out of cycles of oppression. They just get put back into the middle of the oppression and then we expect them to be better. But what uh, Isaiah says in the scriptures over and over again, Jesus too, God puts the lonely in families. And that's what he does. That's God is always putting the lonely in families. So really, I also did some research on how the suburbs were designed, like how we created those. It's not that old. Believe it or not, it's 1957 was the first suburb in in uh, in Long Island, in New York, with first suburb, the Levitt, William Levitt is the creator of the suburban dream. 
and the American Suburban Dream, which everything was based off after that. And they just created it out of nothing. They literally had a housing shortage and veterans coming back. And so they created this way and did it and they redesigned. This is really fascinating just in terms of like even invention and how we do things, but like they redesigned how we live. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I just think it's time to rethink that. I think we need an upgrade on how we decided to live and how we can redesign what already is to adjust to a more equitable, fair, more beautiful world. So you have on one end, you have families, nuclear families who are uh, disassociated from the larger context of what we call kinship or relationships, meaningful relationships, mm -hmm. uh, extended family, we might call that, but maybe without a bloodline, right? But like aunts and uncles and village uh, and we we're all like isolated in the nuclear family and it's killing them. It's killing us. It's killing us with anxiety and mental illness and depression and like addiction. It's through the roof. People are lonely yeah. and all the pressure is on this nuclear family, which has become sort of this idol in our culture, I think, uh, fueled on by the American dream. So I think we just need to we need an answer for that. And then all these people on the other side who have no affordable housing and who are stuck in this like system of basic uh, economic slavery uh, and the slum landlords keep getting richer. Uh, they also need some relief and some help. Uh, and then I think the earth needs some relief and help in terms of what we're building and how we're using it. So I think all these things come together in this like, and then also maybe we could be the, like, literally, I know we say like, you're the change that, you know, be the change that you want to see in the world. You know, we have these like, but I actually think maybe, maybe we could, maybe we could at least model the goodness of God and what it looks like to offer radical hospitality to the world and to our neighbors and how it actually benefits everybody if we do this uh, yeah, out of blessing. So. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, our early story where the Oikos which was the main social structure on the Greco-Roman Empire, the gospel would hit it and it would become a microchurch in this new extended spiritual family. And, right. and our experience in the Kansas City underground is, you know, a nuclear family, like you said, it, it, it can't mediate enough of Jesus to actually fully disciple people. Right. An extended spiritual family actually is big enough and we get broken in families. We're only going to get healed in a family like that. And right. the way that you guys are embodying that is so... Beautiful. So, Brian, I want to bring you in, bud. How are you doing today? Fantastic, man. Man, this has been a pretty good start. <laughs> I, I just want to shut up and don't even act like I'm here. I just want to listen. To, uh, there's one thing that's curious for me, though, Danielle. Like, yeah. <laughs> every time I've watched you speak, and it, I, 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 I just realized my mouth was just kind of back down on the floor here uh, as you were sharing what you're doing with your backyard. What started you? in this, not everybody knows your story. What started you to have this disposition? Cause there's a lot of people going suburbia. That's not the way the whole world has been. Um, <laughs> you know, even just having that framework and coming at it, like we can do better. We can have an upgrade on that. How did this start for you? Why, how, why is Danielle like Danielle? Huh? That's a mystery. I wish I knew that exactly. I remember my mom, even as a young kid, just saying like, why couldn't you be normal? You know, I always remember having conversations with my principal about like, why is attendance so important to an education? It doesn't make any sense. You're either smart enough or you're not like, and, uh, you know, walking through this idea of like, you just have a sitting in these classrooms, wasting our time because you're, you're, you know, you're training us to live this kind of life, you know, like, <laughs> But anyway, so I think it's just partly, you know, I think my dad is a little bit like this, you know, critical thinker. I remember he, uh, we used to go to the movies together and when we would be done in the movie, he'd be like, okay, who's the bad guy? Who is the good guy? Do you think he really was the bad guy? What's the movie trying to say? Do you agree with it? And I just used to be like, oh, for Pete's sake, dad, like, can we just watch a movie? But now like everything I watch, you know, everything I see, I'm like, who's the bad guy? Who's the good guy? <laughs> I actually, I think I'm going to do a, a podcast series on God at the movies, you know, where we just talk through like critical thought, like, what does it mean to engage uh, critically to sort of ask the right questions. But then I would say when you add Jesus to that, of course, it's not just a critique of the culture, but then it's a prophetic imagining of what could be if the spirit, if Jesus was leading us. So, you know, that prophetic imagination kind of thing. And then I just happened to have the opportunity through my life to be able to try some things. 
and fail at them and realize that, oh, those things that keep us from trying things aren't that bad, actually. Failure is not a bad thing. It's a teacher. It's it's good. I've learned so much. And then try it again and uh, succeed at some things and be able to go like, oh, yay, this is great. Like something actually worked. Like we can produce some things together. And oh, yeah. Dear. So it's just a, a, a whole bunch, a whole mix of things, I think, that enable me to keep on trying. I love that. Well, uh, we're going to, in just a minute, we're going to jump into um, our main conversation for today. But we always like to ask a really profound question before we do that. So based <laughs> off ready. of your uh, commentary about movies, we'd like to know, what are the top one or two movies that you've watched during the pandemic that you're like, everybody should go see this movie? It sounds like you're a movie person. Oh, that's such a hard question, though, because movies are like art, right? Everybody's got, everyone's got their particulars, don't they? Um, Jeepers, I should have prepared for this. I did do a whole podcast on the five questions that Wonder Woman 1984 was asking us. All right. Uh, now, I know it wasn't the biggest uh, hit in terms of like, people are like the production, you know, like they're always, but I'm like, as an as a movie, like as a storytelling mechanism that's asking us to think about things, I think that was a keeper for me. Um, I liked it a lot. Uh, movies. Do you, do people even watch those anymore? I feel like it's, we've moved on to like Netflix and <laughs> <laughs> well, I wa- gonna, I've watched gonna... a whole bunch of like Palestinian Israel, like the, I'm trying to remember what the name of it is now on Netflix. Um, and it's all about these like spies that go in undercover and they, anyway, those are terrifying. Well, do you I remember those? They were fantastic, yeah. really well written, but also totally terrifying. But I've I watched a lot of those with my husband. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I'm going to watch Wonder Woman 1984 now. You've pushed me over the edge. I'm going to watch it. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, watch it with that lens on, you know, not just as a moviegoer enjoying a movie, but like, what are what is this trying to say to us? I love, you know, they don't, I love, I think it has to do with a female director, to tell you the truth, mm. because even the way that she portrays villains uh, the villains are all complicated. They're not really just bad guys. Mm-hmm. They're complicated. They're trapped people that need to be free. Like, so there's just some beautiful rethinks of like how we traditionally do this bad, good uh, movie relationship. It's, it's, it's nice. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for the recommendation. <laughs> well, well, today, Expo family, uh, we're looking at the final shift in the made for more framework on mobilization that's based out of the book of Ephesians. And uh, we believe the book of Ephesians is Paul's answer to this question. What is it that Jesus had in mind when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so it's unique in that it's providing uh, what many theologians call a constitution for the church. It's a blueprint, uh, the original design. And we've walked through five previous shifts. And today is the shift based out of Ephesians chapter six. And the shift is from more strategy to more surrender. In other words, we need to prepare for battle. Ephesians 6 makes it very clear that we live in a world at war. And if we're not aware of that, uh, it would be the equivalent of a family having a picnic on Normandy during D-Day. We'll find ourselves uh, obliterated because we're not aware of what's happening. And to win this battle, it's not about more human cleverness. It, it's about surrender to the Lord Jesus and his mission. And individually, the enemy is going to attempt to hinder the fullness of Jesus being manifest in us. It's, he's going to try to restrict the expression of that fullness being carried through the body of Christ and and there's an individual level. It's, it's like, like when Jesus goes toe-to-toe with the evil one in the wilderness, there's a battle there around identity and desire and appetites. And then corporately, there's a battle. Paul says, we're battling with principalities and powers. And this is when uh, the demonic takes on a head of steam and becomes a system of oppression that's being informed by the demonic. And we're going to look at both of these today. And what's shocking, and it's true, is that both of these forms of oppression, whether it's individual or corporately, they're actually operating inside the church. And see, more strategies when we're just trying to plug people into groups or programs to be a part of our strategy. It's when we're, when we, 
when we plan then pray and ask God to bless our plan. <laughs> and, but more surrender is when we're helping people rest in their identity in Christ and rest in the gospel and find healing for their deepest wounds and freedom from their captivity. And, and when we as the body of Christ begin to address systematic evil and win, and this is a very, uh, it's been a very convoluted conversation. I know some of you are listening today. There might be some baggage. Um, we're just asking that you'd hold the tension today, have an open mind. And uh, Danielle, we want to start by asking you this question. Um, what are some of the major systems of oppression um, that are demonic in nature that you see operating inside of the church uh, that you believe are potentially informed by principalities and powers? So we're just going to start with a real light question. <laughs> uh, wow. Okay. Well, you know, I, I recently did sort of a rant uh, confessional thing on my Instagram on five toxic cultures. That's how I frame it is five toxic cultures. But I would say in a couple of those toxic cultures that are at work in the church, this is kind of like, I feel like we're coming to an, well, we're in an exposing season of the church where things are being lifted off and we're going, ugh, that was a little bit uglier than we had on we had thought, right? It's kind of that drawer that you left for so long <laughs> that looks really good, but you pull it out and you're like, ah, shut it. So I think it's the Lord's kindness, of course, that's leading us to repentance. So what I would say is to rethink, you know, what it is that we're supposed to, how, not only what it is we're supposed to be doing, but how we're supposed to be doing it. So in those five toxic cultures in that rant, it's a long rant, so I'm not going to get into it now. If you want to check it out, go check it out on my Instagram. Uh, you can go back and see five toxic cultures and then five resilient practices, uh, which will uh, address what I think are key sort of demonic influences of the church right now. Even if they're not overtly demonic, I think behind, uh, you know, I always say that John 10, 10 is a good frame of reference. If you're worried about using the words demonic or whatever, you can even just say like, is this killing, stealing, destroying, or mm -hmm. is this giving life? So if it's killing, stealing, destroying, I always say that comes from the enemy. So however that is manifesting itself, you know, if you think it's a directed demon or just an influence or a worldview, whatever it is, if it's killing, stealing and destroying, it's, uh, it's from the enemy. And if it's bringing life, uh, it's from God. So that's not a bad discernment tool. If you're wondering, is this demonic? Just take a look at the fruit. Is the fruit destructive? Then it's demonic. Regardless of what level of demonic it is, it is demonic. So for me, I think issues of control, uh, lack of transparency. Um, I think the spiritual abuse, so power, how we use power in the church. I think that I always say that hierarchy, hierarchical uses of power are demonic in their origin. It's literally the direct result of sin. Mm -hmm. So I always say, if you want to model sin to the world, um, go ahead, go with a, a strong hierarchical control-based leadership model. That's a perfect picture of sin. <laughs> it is. And Just Jesus to kick us off. Overtly said, not so with you. Right. Don't do this. Like he literally said, this is how the world does this. Don't do this because you're followers of Jesus. So you're going to do it a different way. So I think how we lead uh, I think the lack of transparency in the church is interesting and in leaders' lives is fascinating. We're petrified. We're scared. We do so many things in secret. Um, and I always remember my friend, uh, Dave, wonderful leader, wise, wise, wise leader. I was doing things in secret just because sometimes when you're in a culture, you start taking on, you forget. This is that demonic influence, right? Is that all of a sudden you're like, oh, wow, I'm behaving this way. And so what do I do to get out of these? You know, why am I so afraid of being transparent? It wasn't a lack of transparency about anything bad. It was just lack of transparency, even about I was hiding good things. So I wouldn't get in trouble or whatever it was. And my, my friend Dave just said to me, remember when they hauled Jesus in at the end, the religious leaders, and they said, tell us everything you've been teaching. And Jesus has this line. He says, everything I've been teaching, I've done so openly. Um, he said to me, I found that to be a really good principle to live by, <laughs> which was really him just rebuking me to death, right? <laughs> Saying like, don't do that. Like, don't do that thing in secret. Do it all openly or don't do it. And I, that was a real game changer for me, even in terms of like, I think the principality around like hide, I think that's been a, such a dangerous, because as soon as we uh, have a lack of transparency in our lives, unhealth, darkness, you know, wrong thoughts, wrong practices seep in. 
And uh, so that's a that's been a real really good practice uh, a principle for me to pay attention to. So those are just a few. It's so helpful. And you know, it's amazing to me how similar Rob's opening question was to the was the how you answered the question about the movies. Who are the bad guys? Who are the good guys? Right. And it's complicated. Right. Because what you're describing is there's a whole lot of mix. There's a lot of uh, challenging things in the good things and things that we think are good things that might be more oppressive than we think. Right. Um, so I just kind of want to turn to where have you, have you seen the church or the people of God? Um, where have you seen Jesus making you go back to John 10, 10, the thief has stolen in some of those areas. Where have you seen that the church is starting to actually win where the, the life, the fully alive life is being claimed back from some of those things? Yeah, I think this is neat. Um, I would say almost the direct opposite of those toxic things that we see these, these oppressive principalities, I think wherever the direct opposite. So I often talk about um, even cultivating true humility. Like I see theologically the church coming alive in this area. I feel like we're almost in a reformation in the sense of the return of the Imagio Dio as like a major principle of good news. Mm -hmm. So us seeing for the, maybe some of us for the first time or for a refreshingly new time, this like original design that God has in the heart of all humans everywhere, which would, if we really fully celebrate it, would confront uh, demonic influences of racism, sexism, you know, control, uh, classism, you know, the way that we've designed. I mean, even sometimes I remember having uh, conversations with church planters who would say, you know, where's the most upwardly mobile community that we can launch a church in to reach the most accessible people, you know? And I'm always like, is that the kingdom principle? Like, is that, I, I understand that that's a good way to start a business. I totally get that. And there's, you want to use wisdom and all people deserve the gospel, but is that the kingdom strategy? Is that the Jesus way? Is this, are these the right questions we're asking? Like, is this financially sustainable? Is that the question we lead with? Well, it is when we're in a, a worldview of economics as king, when we're serving money, for sure, that's the main question. But is that the question of the kingdom? Is that what it is that, the, that Jesus would call us to? So I think, I think, I believe that there is this real exposing, like I said, so I think we're seeing things for the first time. Like, I don't even think we really understood racism the way that we've been seeing it this last year. Uh, and I think we're terrified of it because we're so afraid of it. But again, it's been killing and stealing and destroying not only individual people, but also systems and churches and the world of the wealth of the diversity, the gospel of reconciliation, like all the things that God wants to display the gospel, racism is stolen from us. So I think even just that, that exposing of that is like, yay, okay, now we see that this is being taken. So now what does life look like in this spot? So I would say that I would also say sexism, you know, this gender conversation I've been having for my whole life, because I happen to be born a woman. And uh, so just really challenging that through systems and structures and seeing some of that. Um, but I would also say one of the great ways, I think, is this forced way. And I think this is the kindness of the Lord, too, during COVID, is people can't do the normal, natural go to church thing. And I think pretty quickly they got tired of watch the church kind of thing. So now what is there? What's left? And I think this is maybe one of the greatest breakthroughs spiritually that we will have in this generation and in the Western church is to say, what does it mean to be the church? And this is where people are like, what? I got to pray. Like, I got to show up for my neighbor. Like, I've got to figure out how to like, you know, uh, get some peace in my life. Like, I got to. So, and, and again, yes, you do, because this is what discipleship is. This is what you've been called to, to live the gospel. I have to figure out where racism is in me. I have to figure out, you know. So, all of these things, I think, is this greatest invitation to see Jesus. And I've seen believers figure this out, be loved to their neighbors. I've seen them embody Jesus. Jesus, where they are more, I think, than I have uh, anywhere else. You know, Danielle, something we were talking about uh, actually before we were on air is the tendency to see everything through the lens of individualism. And uh, even the armor of God, you know, I, I uh, grew up in the church and it was a great flannel graph session. <laughs> they have the guy and they put all the armor on him. And the idea there is almost like a lone warrior. 
mm-hmm. uh, who's standing alone, putting on the armor, when really this is a text that's about the community. It's about the church. I, I actually can't put on the armor all by myself. Uh, for example, to raise my shield of faith, a Roman legion had the testudo formation. They were locking shields and it looked like a tortoise shell, right? So I can't actually even operate fully in the shield of faith without my brothers and sisters, us locking our shields together. So how, you know, the church leaders that are listening today and they want to operationalize, you know, the armor of God for their people, um, how can a church leader equip their people uh, to win this spiritual battle at that level? Um, what are some of the things that you've noticed in the past that really do accelerate freedom, deliverance, and pushing back darkness? Yeah, I mean, I think what a leader's number one priority is, is to model, you know, to model what a life uh, fully submitted to the Holy Spirit looks like. And again, this is this idea of transparency um, and this idea of daily practices of, you know, you can't, you can't give or mandate what you don't have or practice. And I mean, we, I just, I feel like this is such basic conversation, but at the same time, this is, I wish I could make it fancier, but in the end, you have to practice what you believe. You have to practice your own faith. And I mean, we see the example of Jesus refusing to do it alone right? Asking his disciples, would you come? Could you pray with me? Would you come? And I think sometimes we think, oh, Jesus is just taking advantage of every moment to, to, to do leadership mentorship to his people. I think he was lonely. I think he was tired. I think he was hungry. I think he needed friends. I think he needed people to pray with. I think he had dark, horrible nights of the soul and he needed some companions. I think this idea, I think you're right. One of the greatest demonic threats to Western Christianity is this idea that it's just about me and God. Uh, it's about my personal relationship with Jesus. Like you've, you've made Jesus that small, first of all, (laughs) and also, no, it's not, you can't, you were not designed to be alone. There's actually only one time in the created order where God says, oh, this is not good. And it's when a man's leading all by himself. So I feel like, uh, I call this the Hercules myth, you know, that everyone or the Hercules syndrome in the church where everybody, and even individual Christians, because we model this. And then even if we don't preach this, this is actually what people are trying to do is live these basically self-help with Jesus lives of becoming better and bigger and fancier and shinier. And we're on this ascension, you know, we're always on this ascension path. Mm -hmm. And then of course we run into the person of Jesus and realize, oh, he's not ascending. He's descending. He's on the descension path. He's literally going in the opposite direction. So what does it mean to descend what does it mean as a leader to descend? What does a dissension path look like for you as a leader? And I think it's, you know, I think it, I think this is what we're called to is to model the deeper dissension, transparency, honesty, brokenness, dependency on the Holy Spirit, invitation to community intentionally. Um, and it's just so not sexy to do that. And it's so not like what everybody wants us to do, because what everybody wants us to do is to ascend what we are supposed to ascend. So to descend is so countercultural and also counter like what the dominant powers are that it is a fight. So I would say that one of the great spiritual warfare areas in a leader's life in this time is to go in the opposite direction of that cultural norm of ascension. Um, So, how do I see this working out? I think I, you know, prayer, like, I just, I I honestly think like we should probably market less and pray more. And I know that just sounds so trite to say, but honestly, like prayer. So even just during this COVID pandemic, I do a day of prayer, a half day of prayer once a month. I usually do a full day of prayer with my team, just whoever's helping me. We just take a whole day and we just pray. And for the most part, what we do is listen. We try to cultivate uh, silent practices because we're always talking. It's what I do for a living. So I try to quiet and listen to God. And those one day uh, prayer times with my team, like do way more than all the, all that, like if I could have take that day and do marketing or leadership strategy or whatever it is, this one day of prayer, just getting us together and then discerning what it is God's teaching us. But man, every time that comes up, if I don't have it on the calendar, I'm never going to do it. I'm ne- I never have time to pray. But then every time I pray, I see the shift. I see the shift is so powerful. So I would say prayer. And I would say we have to dig, like we have to die 
in that. Like you've got to die to all the other to-do lists, all the other leadership competitors, and you've got to just learn how to pray. So if it's helpful to anybody, I have a prayer day, half a day of prayer that we, we give you a guide and we start together and we end together and all these exercises for you to do to cultivate a prayer life uh, where you're hearing from the Lord. We do that once a month. Um, yeah, you can find out about that if it's helpful to you. But I would say that's one of the great things you can do. Yeah. Danielle, where would they find out about that? Uh, that's a really good question. I think if you just go to daniellestrickland.com, you probably can go find prayer days. <laughs> that's a really good question. I should have known that. Sorry. I didn't know I was going to say that, but all, and actually you could even just come to one and see it done and then off you go to do it. Um, that's kind of the idea. It's not meant to be a gathering place. It's more meant to be a sending place, but just like, what does it look like to just, and I call it wasting time on God, even though it's probably the most strategic time, but we have to kind of change our minds about even time, right? Like even time is this you know, TikTok, TikTok, time is money. We say that all the time. Is it? Is time money? Is that really what we feel about time? Or do we serve an eternal God who has all the time in the world? And like, you see this in leaders' lives, like I'm so busy or I can't, you know, and we have this kind of production. Uh, you know, I don't think we've really fully understood even the spiritual ramifications of commodifying everything mm -hmm. in this highly Western commercialized life. Everything has a price tag everything. I think even just to get rid of that, even that mindset of like time is money. No, it's not. Time is God's it belongs to the Lord. So what, what is, what are the priorities he wants us to do with our time? I mean, the, the implications are really profound, but I say that prayer is the way that you're going to find that out. Yeah, For me, a, a lot of this happened through a 24 seven prayer room. I spent uh, four years, three and a half years. We prayed nonstop in the downtown East side in this little room we carved out for prayer mm -hmm. when the 24 seven prayer movement was just getting started. And we just took shifts and I, all the leaders were required to take a shift a day if they could, or at least three a week. And they were three hour shifts. And I just locked myself in that room. It had terrible cell reception. So it was terrible for produ productivity. And I just wasted my time and I was irritated for most of it, but I just figured out how to pray. Yes. And uh, that was so, that was strategic. Well, I hear you. I hear three things kind of emerging. One is, you know, the path of descent. And how, how can you move deeper into uh, a posture of humility, surrender, actually doing the work yourself of going into the basement of your soul and finding out what agreements you actually made with evil and the evil one, and then not hiding that. You're saying, actually, we have to take the stigma away from that. We have to be transparent about that. We need a triad that we talked to about. We need to appropriately share that with the community that we're a part of. So everyone sees this is the work we all need freedom. And then of course, I hear you saying the work of extraordinary prayer and fasting and, uh, and that we must begin in prayer and different forms of prayer, listening prayer in particular, uh, forms of prayer that are contemplative. And so prayer is a dialogue and not just a monologue. It's super helpful. Um, Brian, what's on your mind? I was just, I, mean, I thought about several things and you just covered them there. Um, the, there's like the, an inverse to God's economy that you're talking about uh, in so many ways. <clears throat> and uh, I've, I've been in the habit for the last eight, 10 years or so to say, God, what's, what's the word for this year that'll most, you know, highly influence kind of the outcomes of my life this year. And uh, this year it was two words and, uh, and they're, they're going to, they're, they do a pretty good job of capturing this theme. And, um, and it's, and Rob, you know, this real well, it's, it's, it's uh, obedience is greater than competence. Mm -hmm. Obedience is greater than competence means don't necessarily shove your competence and all the training and all the abilities and all the cognitive capacity and all don't, don't shelve it. Don't throw it away. Like it's, immaterial or irrelevant bring it but why don't you try this listening to me and just do what i ask because i will actually i'm actually smarter than you says god <laughs> i actually have the whole world figured out you have a small brain i've got all this so it's like take all that and and, and give it to this and so i'm curious uh, as to we're, the, the shift that we're in is how do we how do we 
how do we kind of put the strategy here and surrender and obedience are kind of uh, on the same side of that greater than equation. Can you just tell us a story where in your life you were able to just kind of put the competencies, put the strategies over here and say, here's an area Jesus is asking me to surrender. That's hard. Like one was that day you just talked about, I found myself in the room and I wasted time on God. I love that phraseology because it's actually the best investment of time. Uh, but, a, but a bigger one, um, a more challenging situation where there was a surrender necessary that ended up being one of the biggest uh, releases of kingdom potential in and through you. Yeah. Wow. That's a good question. Um, I would say just before I begin that one of the great discoveries of going deeper, like when we say that, you know, this deep life, this going deeper and modeling dissension, but also this allowing our competency side of things to be on this side and then leaning into what it is that God's asking us to do um, is around our view of God. And I think this is where even like, even as you were talking, Rob, I was thinking about all of the, when we talk about even the word obedience, for example, or when we talk about what God requires of us, I think we have still this hierarchical controlling power-based God that we forget that God is self-giving love, that God is trustworthy, that we can lean into God because God has our best in mind. Not And even uh, words, you know, sometimes people will be like, how do we leverage people? You know, and I'm always like, it, even the word, even though I know what they mean, I think we have this idea that God, it's God is leveraging us, you know, that God want, needs to use us. Like, and even that God wants to use you. I'm always like, ah, I don't know. I don't think God needs to use you or wants to use you. I think he wants to free you and liberate you. And in so doing liberate, like, so I know it's just language, but sometimes I think this, the don't be afraid of this work because you will discover as I have discovered that God is better and more loving and kinder and more gracious than I ever know. So to obey that is the most liberating thing uh, I've ever done. Um, I'd say in my own life, uh, I got to the end of my relationship with the Salvation Army. So I was in the Salvation Army for about 22 years as an officer, signed up for life. It's kind of one of those vocation things. You sign up like a priest. So this is what you're going to do. It's my main identity. It's all I ever wanted to do. I met my husband. We got married in Salvation Army uniform. We both come from Salvation Army families. He's like fifth generation Salvation Army my parents were rescued by the Salvation Army. I was saved through a Salvation Army. So, I mean, like my life was defined by the Salvation Army. And when I was doing some deeper work, I was with a Christian counselor doing some things that were coming up in my life in the way of what it was that I wanted to, to live in the way that I wanted to live. I went to a Christian counselor and I had this total vision, a vision, like a visioning prayer exercise. Uh, which, by the way, if you're looking for some of this material, uh, Visioning Prayer, Can You Hear Me by Brad Jersak is a wonderful resource. Just visioning. I do this all the time now. I pray this way. But I envisioned myself uh, with Jesus. Jesus came and we had this conversation and he asked me for some things that he wanted me to bury. Uh, to say goodbye to, to say like, these don't define you anymore. Things from my past, things from my life. So whether or not that was my rib, all these different things. And one of the things he asked me for was my Salvation Army uniform. Oh, and I was like, wow. that's not going to work out for me. Like, I can't give you that because my whole <laughs> life, like I, this is my whole, the construct of my life is this, like, this is their, it's their house. It's their car. It's their system. Like, it's like, literally this is my life. So I was like, I, I don't think I can do that. And so he's like, that's okay. Don't do that right now, but you will, you know, you're going to get ready, like be ready, but give me what you can. So I gave him like a symbol, but not the whole thing. And then a couple of years later, I was in this, uh, in America and uh, serving as a Salvation Army officer. And anyway, it came to a head. It came to this conflict around what God was calling me to do, very clearly calling me to do, and what this particular structure system uh, would not allow me to do. And I remember sitting in an office with this guy and him saying, I guess you're going to have to choose. And I saw behind him, it was very, very interesting, but there was this, because up until this point, I was able to manage these things. You know, what God was asking me to do and my calling in the Salvation Army, they were manageable, but this was coming more and more became tense. And this guy was standing there and he didn't do it very well. It was a very toxic leadership moment, but he was standing there basically saying, you will choose. And it was actually all about the uniform, believe it or not. It was about this, the uniform. It came down to this conversation yeah. and he's like, you'll choose the uniform. And then I saw Jesus standing beside him as I was in the meeting. It was so cool. And Jesus had a box and he had a big smile. 
<laughs> and he's like, <laughs> yeah, are you ready now? Yeah. And I left that meeting. Now, I think in another time, if I hadn't had that vision and I hadn't done that prayer time and I hadn't done that deep work where I knew that Jesus was asking me for something specific, if I hadn't done that, I think I would have left that meeting and tried to strategize humanly how to sort this out. Like this is sortable. You know, that's always my, this is sortable. Like we can sort this out. Like let's figure this out. But when I was in, I was literally in that meeting and I realized, oh, this is Jesus inviting me to something. And it was the most painful invitation. It would change. Uh, it did change the trajectory of my life because it's always been about the kingdom. It's always, but it literally stopped a dream. Like it stopped, like, you know, my husband and I, for example, I was like, honey, like, I'm so sorry. I knew we were going to do this for the rest of our lives, but it turns out Jesus wants me now to do like to turn left here in the kingdom. And it was my identity. I didn't even know what to wear. You know, what do you wear? I've wore the same thing my whole entire life. Now I got to, got to come up with a wardrobe, but anyway, that's the least concern, but uh, everything, my definition, who am I, you know, what do you do and who are you if you're not this and who says you're that? And I mean, all these things that came up. So I, I probably about three and a half years ago, and this is where Ephesians three began to actually define mm -hmm. my life. I began to, I started a little company called boundless and um, boundless is really around Ephesians three. Like, and I, you know, God's like, this is how big my love is for you. Like, you know, go ahead, go ahead and try this. And, and when I actually had that vision, by the way, I couldn't give him the uniform. He, he called me, he, we buried what I could. He called me out into this big, wide open field. And he mm -hmm. said to me, go run, go wherever you want. Now for me, my own personality type, this is like good news, right? Like I'm like, I'm designed for big open fields. But on that time in my life, I was terrified of the openness. It just terrified me. I felt uncovered. I felt unknown. I felt like overwhelmed. So instead of running into the field, I ran off the side of a cliff in this vision. Mm -hmm. And I, I fell down this side of the cliff into this body of water, into this ocean. The ocean for me has always been symbolic of the love of God. I've got it tattooed on my arm and all kinds of things. So I'm in this ocean and I realize like, oh, I'm, I'm covered now by the love of God. And I hear God say to me, take your time and you can't screw this up. You just can't screw this up. And then the vision pans out and I see that I have not fallen into an ocean. I've actually fallen into the hands of God filled mm -hmm. with water. And he's just caught me wherever I've jumped. And so I literally couldn't have screwed it up. I could have jumped anywhere and he would have caught me. <laughs> and that, that revelation again of who God is and what his character and even this idea of like, you can't screw this up. Like we put so much Herculean pressure on us to get it right. And it's like, you don't have to get it right. God's got you. Like he can catch you. He's got you. There's this whole realm called the kingdom of God that is at war with a worldly system of destruction, uh, even inside of you, right? There is this war going on. And so to surrender is to surrender yourself to the boundless love of God, where you can't screw this up, where you're going to be caught by the arms of the father, where you're going to hear this, like, it's you that I love mm. and take your time. Like time is not money. It turns out God has all the time in the world. So take your time. And in that place, out of that fullness, then you can run. And this kingdom that he asks us to run in is literally boundless. Um, okay. So that, I mean, that vision really just kind of probably describes the last three and a half years of my life and that surrendering, that burying of things that used to identify me. And, you know, it's really funny. I was out for a prayer day with my team and we had this specific prayer exercise we were all doing silently. And the prayer exercise basically asked this question, why haven't you done what God told you to do? Like that was the, just in general, like, why haven't you done what God told you to do? And God said to me, like, literally God said to me, yeah, why? And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I feel like I've done. And like, quite literally, I felt like he told me to go. So I literally was like, guys, I'll be right back. I drove to my house. I got my uniform, like my physical uniform out of my closet. And I came back and I bit, we buried it together. Yes. Wow. Yes. And I get like the spiritual, now there's nothing wrong with that uniform and I love it. And I love that people wear it and I love what it means and what it's meant to me. I mean, the doors, it opens, it's not, I don't want anyone listening to the saying that I think that's demonic. I don't, but I think that the demonic force around shoving me, squeezing me is Romans 12, right? Don't let the world conform you or squeeze you into its mold, but be transformed by the, the spirit. So this idea of transformation coming when we're willing to let go, to let go, to surrender our identities and like who says we are what we are and to obey God. And when you do that, then this, uh, this goodness of God can flood our minds and our lives. That's right.
That's our Jesus. Thank you so much for sharing. That's a sacred gift, um, your story, and we treasure it. Um, I want to say to everyone who is listening right now, um, that same Jesus is completely and totally available to you in this moment. And uh, he knows what your uniform is. And he's for you. He's inviting you into the field to run free. And uh, Daniel, uh, just before I bring a question back, I do want to say to um, everyone right now, if you have a question, uh, we're going to have some time here in just a couple minutes for you to ask Daniel a question. So you can put that in the chat right now. But Daniel, I want to ask you, um, you know, you, you've mentioned two or three books already. Um, I'm curious if you could just take a minute or two and highlight some key resources that have been really pivotal for you in this freedom journey um, and just make some recommendations, pass along the good things that God brought into your life that have led to that kind of freedom. Yeah, sure. Um, a couple of classics that I think are really eye-opening when it comes to spiritual principalities and powers, not just being sort of uh, the devil tempting you, but also systems and the way that we think. So big theological ideas, uh, Binding the Strongman by Ched Myers. That's uh, specifically looking at kind of the political implications of the gospel of Mark, but you start seeing like, it's just a really eye-opening, mind-blowing book. I highly recommend that. Engaging uh, the Powers by Walter Wink. Uh, that's a classic theological treatise on what are the principalities and the powers. I'd, I'd say around the issue of surrender in spiritual warfare, I would recommend The Release of the Spirit by Watchman Nee. Just really about how we have to die to our souls and our bodies kind of thing to open the spirit that then liberates our souls and our bodies. So it's just a really cool, beautiful, deep uh, read. Um, I would say on a counseling level, Altogether You by Jenna Remersma. Hmm. Uh, this is the internal family systems counseling. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of it. It's a, a game changer when it comes to viewing your life as a, a place that you welcome yourself to. Hmm. Um, instead of a compartmentalized idea. So this is a new, uh, kind of a new counseling system that really is Jesus-centered without it, without that founder meaning it to be. But it's like amazing when you start reading this through the uh, lens of Romans. So I'd recommend that. Original Blessing by Danielle Schroyer has been a game changer for me. And that goes back to that, like the original design of humanity and seeing ourselves through that lens. So I don't know about uh, you guys, but as a leader, I feel like there were two big... Um, demonic, definitely destructive forces going on in my life. One was the external pressure to perform in this Herculean ascent. And then the other one was this internal cynical view of my own self that I'm bad. And at the core of me, I'm totally depraved. And um, I know that that triggers some people. <laughs> uh, but when I did a deep dive in that, and this is this original blessing by Daniel Schroyer, it's really fascinating that the early church's greatest news was that actually God saw through the lens of the image of Christ in people. So, and even to see that in myself has been like a game changer. So those two internal pressure and outside pressure, I wrote a book called The Ultimate Exodus, which are some stories around liberation and even in my own journey of uh, recovery from addiction and things like that. And then I would just say, even as you were speaking, Rob, I was thinking about The Deeply Formed Life, a new book out by Rich Velotis. And I was really struck by, um, you know, Dallas Willard's or Richard Foster's celebration of discipline has mm -hmm. sort of been this like main, you know, just how we do the spiritual disciplines. I highly recommend that. I think that's fantastic. I would say that Rich Velotis's The Deeply Formed Life is this generation's celebration of discipline. Mm. And it's really interesting to put them beside each other because what Rich talks about, he talks about like sex and counseling and prayer and rhythms and rest and if you look through Rich's book, in terms of the disciplines around that and the holistic need to like engage in a deeply formed life, it's the disciplines that we need for right now. I, I really feel like there's this really shift that went on where the, the disciplines that we were needing to do were much more clinical and much more like you should practice this because it's good spiritual exercise. Right. Whereas Rich's books is spiritual discipline for a deeply formed life. I think it's, it's a fascinating study in and of itself, how, we've, how, how we need to change what it is we focus on. So those are some resources that might help people go a bit deeper. And Daniel, you also mentioned one other book. I think it was Visioning Prayer or Envisioning Prayer. Yeah, Can You Hear Me by Brad Jersak. Can okay. you hear me? He also has a book called uh, Christ-like 
a more Christ-like faith, a more a beautiful gospel, a more Christ-like God, a, a more beautiful gospel. And there's a one line that kind of describes it that I, I can't ever shake where he said, we spent a whole generation trying to convince people that Jesus is God. And now the task is to convince all of us that God is Jesus. And that's like, that's a game changer when we start to understand that the fullness of God is represented in Christ. This is really interesting. Yeah. It's not so much that Jesus is like God. It's that God is like Jesus. That's right. Yeah. It's a, you could just, you could actually just, I've been thinking on that for months and months and months and months since I read it. Cause I'm like, isn't that the truth? Right. We always exceptional Jesus. It's fascinating. Anyway. I'm stuck back when you said you can't screw this up. I'm right. In the vision, you go off the cliff, you think you're in the ocean, you're actually just in his hands. You can't yeah. screw this up. I imagine and there's people on the call going, how do I do that without <laughs> screwing everything up? Which is this weird demonstration that that demonic force is there, right? It's like we have all these rules and how we do things at this church and the denominations break down. And this is kind of our, this is our set of things to do and not do so that you don't mess it up. And actually you're coming out saying you can't mess this up. And that's the gospel. And that's just like, and this is going somewhere. That's just context for kind of the next question I have for you. Uh, and hopefully to kind of put this one on a T so you can just crush it home. What are the essential things required for someone to find inner healing, freedom, and victory? If, if we're plagued by the question, how do I not screw today up? And you're saying, essentially what you're saying is you stepped into freedom, which is the gospel. I mean, <laughs> Jesus came, we might be free. And the freeing message was, you can't screw this up. Like, what are those essential things required for inner healing, freedom, and victory? And what perhaps might that phrase have to, how, how might that phrase inform the answer to that question is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. I mean, you can hear even in that phrase that, you know, performance is a big deal, right? Like, and again, we're back to this like myth, this cultural myth of uh, success, 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 success. You have to, you have to keep, and you see the pressure of this, right? Um, I would say like, this can be a really trite answer, except it's going to be the deepest answer I can come up with is, is to find yourself in the love of God. It's love. Uh, and I mean, this is literally like the defining, <laughs> it's the thing that's going to remain. It's what God is. It's how God works. It, what, it's what drives God. It's a motivating force for what God does in the world. Like it's, it's all, it's love. And it sounds so ridiculous because of our limitations on and framework around what love means. But I would say to, to do whatever you can. And this is, again, if you're self, if you're spending most of your time self-loathing and self-criticizing, then it's love you need. It's love. It's love for yourself that you need. You need to figure out how you can get rid of that self-loathing and self-critical voice because that's not from God. Yeah. Um, and I'd say if you keep thinking like it's performance anxiety that you have and that like whatever, or if it's if you're motivated by fear of loss and what this means. So that would have been a lot of mine too, right? Fear of loss of identity, fear of loss of job, fear of loss of like who's got me now. Like I would have dreams in the night when that was going on for me of like falling and not ever landing anywhere, like just falling. Like everything was falling. I was just like, ah, like I'm losing. What am I losing? I don't know. Self identity, structure systems, you know, whatever it is, but you, you, you can listen over and over again to people's uh, revelation of the freedom that God gives them. And it always involves a loss of something. And usually it's a loss of control or it's a loss of identity or it's a loss of self because actually to lose yourself. I mean, again, it's like, we're listening to Jesus here <laughs> over and over again, but like you lose yourself. Uh, like a seed dies in the ground, you break open that shell so that you can actually be rooted and then flourishing as a result. So I'd say you need love. So however you need, when you, when you recognize the lack of love, and this was a game changer for me around generosity. It's one of the practices. I do a practice, uh, infinitumlife.com. I do this daily practice where I posture my life and surrender generosity and mission or others focused living. Mm. And whenever I do this, the generosity part, I always, I, I realize that for most of my leadership Christian life, I thought generosity was just about giving more. And I didn't realize that generosity was reciprocal. I didn't realize that it was about receiving more and then giving more and then receiving more. So whenever I see a lack of something in my life, a lack of love or a lack of peace or like, I realize, oh, I'm empty. Like I need to receive 
some of this. So I think even that, like, this is not, I'm terrible. I lack love. I lack, because that's inexhaustible resources from heaven. Uh, what needs to happen is I'm closed, right? I'm in some other mode. I need to open myself to receive what it is that God has for me. And so whether or not that's counseling, you know, a trusted friend, I would say again, Rob, you said this so well earlier, but like we weren't designed to do this life by ourselves. So I always say to leaders, if you're leading by yourself and you're lonely, you're not doing it the Jesus way. Mm-hmm. You know, we've justified lonely leadership for so long and it's yeah. not justifiable. It is yeah. not. If you're lonely, you're not doing it right. So yes. think about how you can open your life uh, in meaningful ways to other people. If you don't have someone in your life, you can confess your sins to you're not living a full life, Amen. right? You're not living a full life. So figure that out. And if uh, we can serve you in that, if we can help you in that, we would love to do that. But I would say that you got to find love, find your source of love. And that's uh, ideally prayer in the end, even the wrestle through in the end, what you're going to find whenever you explore uh, God, you're going to find love. Amen. You, you took me back to a moment in my life where I heard Brendan Manning speak for the first time. And uh, he was talking about healing our, healing our image of God. And it's the first time I became self-aware. Oh, I have an image of God and it might not be correct. Right. <laughs> it's the image that's hanging in the hall of my heart. And I realized, you know, I had this cruel taskmaster. Um, and I was on this treadmill constantly running. And that night uh, there was a revelation in my soul of the love of God. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you're feeling that burden today, I just want to remind you, Expo family, um, pray for what Paul told us to pray for. Pray that the Holy Spirit will pour the love of God into your heart. I encourage you to pray that today. And we're almost done here. I'm going to ask you one more question. Um, This may feel like a little bit of a curveball, but I want you to put on your prophet hat right now. And you've, you've, you've got your, you've had your prophet hat on quite a bit on this one especially there at the end about leading alone. Whew. That's a lie that the evil one has pulled over a lot of people's eyes, but put on your prophet hat. Uh, just briefly, what is it you think the church needs to hear right now? And don't worry about holding back. Uh, it may be the last webinar you ever do, but just give it all, whatever you want. <laughs> you can't screw this up, Danielle. You can't screw this up. <laughs> uh, I'm really, I am believing that as a promise in general, but um, I, okay, look, all of this is done in grace and humility, of course. I mean, who am I? In some ways, I'm just like, well, who am I to say any of this? But um, here's what I would say. I would say not to be afraid. And I would say that we're, I think we're in a new reformation that the old is gone and the new has come. So I would tell the church to stop trying to get back to the old uh, system of doing things. I don't think it was working well for us anyway. I think it was working well for some of our principalities uh, for money, for control, for success, for like our egos. I think it was working well for some of us in that department. But uh, it wasn't working well for discipleship or Jesus followers or, you know, I tell people all the time, 92% of Rwandians were in church the Sunday before the genocide. So if we think getting people to church is the answer, we're not listening to church history. Um, It's not the answer. We have 92% of people in church and still things would be terrible. So um, I think we need to focus on what does matter most at the Jesus way, the Jesus life helping people live Jesus-centered lives. And I think that's going to look a lot less like how we've done church for a long time in the Western, in the oh. Western world. But it's a new reformation. So there'll be pain, there'll be death, there'll be dying to self, there'll be some confusion, there'll be some fear. That's why I think it's important to have a, revel- a fresh revelation for yourself to not be afraid and to not worry about screwing it up. I really think even for me, like just don't worry about it. And I think even like these things like reimagining Uh, how it could be. And just a season of like experimentation, I would say like, don't be afraid to try some things right now. Like this is the perfect time. Uh, What would it look like if Jesus, like, this is my, this is my visioning process right now in my own neighborhood, in my own town. What would it look like if Jesus followers made room for vulnerable people in their own family, in their own backyard? What would it model of the kingdom? What would it model of the community? And I'm living in a culture where the church is not very highly thought of. So what, how would it change our neighbor's mind about Jesus if the Jesus people were known for inclusivity and radical welcome and hospitality? I'm telling you, it'll change everyone's mind about Jesus uh, if we could demonstrate it. So that's the church. 
that's a church on the move. That's what the church looks like. And I would say, don't be afraid and go like, just let yourself dream of what could be if you're willing to let go of the old. That's right. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel. Yes. This has been so good today. Hey, if people want to find more of your resources or what you're up to, where's the best place for them to go in the interwebs? Yep. DanielleStrickland.com. And you can kind of, you can pretty much find me. I've got a new podcast series out right now called Mind Blown. Just if you're looking for mind-blowing revelations of theology or things you thought you knew that you were wrong about, I'm in a whole season of that right now. So every week I'm interviewing people and we're like, whoa, this is crazy. It's better than I thought. And I was more wrong than I ever uh, thought I could be. So if that's helpful, that's the Daniel Strickland podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Danielle. And just a couple of things in closing. I want to thank all of you that have been on the journey with us with this Made for More show. Uh, this is our last one. Uh, but want to let you know that the Made for More framework for mobilization uh, will be featured at the Reset online conference that Exponential will be hosting on May the 19th. You're going to be hearing a lot more about that. I hope you'll join us. It's going to be a day to fuel you and equip you uh, in your context and your setting. And uh, one little plug, uh, today, Alan Hirsch, Lance Ford, and myself have released a new book. It's called The Starfish and the Spirit, and it, it intersects directly a lot of this conversation today. So uh, feel free to take a look at that at thestarfishandthespirit.com. And Brian, anything else you want to add, brother? Give up that little penny you got in your hand and let uh, Jesus fill it. Can't screw that one up. Can't screw this up. Go in grace and peace, Expo family.